Well, it was just this last week when history was made here in the state of Colorado. For the first time ever, the Denver Nuggets were the champions of the world. Oh, come on, a little bit more clap right there. You better clap now because it's going to be a long fall with the Broncos and Russell Wilson. So now cheer while you can. And if you're not from Colorado, you're joining us online, just let us just enjoy our moment, okay? This doesn't happen very often for us. Um, now, it was pretty incredible because you think of how many pieces had to fall into place over the years for the Denver Nuggets to get to this moment of getting to the top of the world when it comes to basketball. But there was one critical piece that was essential for any of this to happen. And it was this one man right here, Nikola Jokic. I'm just saying, some people would argue that he is the greatest living basketball player at this moment in time. Some people make the argument, but you cannot deny the fact that without him, the Nuggets would have had no chance of ever winning anything close to an NBA championship. And when that happened last week, and just seeing all of the festivities and celebrations, got me thinking, how amazing of an impact one single person can have. You know, you look at Nikola on the basketball court, changes everything. But even some of us in here, you have had this experience before. Like, one person has come into your life and changed everything. Maybe on one obvious level, you're married to that person right now. That fundamentally changes everything. Maybe uh, you've had a season with a counselor that set you on a whole new trajectory for your life, helped you overcome some bad stuff and just move forward. Some of us, it's been a friend who's now like the best person in your life that has changed everything for you. It can be mentors. Something that's always funny to me is I'll oftentimes get on the phone with different pastors from around the country. And I'll talk to guys who sometimes have been in this game 30, 40 years. And in 30 minutes, they can completely change the way I think about church and ministry. I mean, it completely changes everything, just one person, even one phone call. Now, if that's true about the impact one person can have, what kind of impact do you think a good dad has in the life of somebody? Actually, what kind of difference does it make for someone to have a really good man in their life. So today is Father's Day. Can I make a confession? I have very mixed feelings about this holiday. I'm going to say holiday. Now let me explain myself. In May, we have this little itty-bitty holiday we call Mother's Day, where we pull out all the stops. There's flowers and colors, and women have all the dresses, and we've kind of made it like a just love on the women period day, and it's just like this massive celebration. And maybe you don't know this, Mother's Day is oftentimes the third highest attended Sunday all year for church, Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. I mean, this is like a massive moment in the year. And then a month later, Father's Day. And it's kind of like this weird thing because you may not know this. This is often the lowest single attended Sunday all year for a church because none of the guys want to come. This is your opportunity to get a break. So this is a dead Sunday for churches. Not only that, I feel like there's kind of this attitude. It's like kind of a check the box thing. And there's almost like this little attitude. I can't really explain it, but it's kind of like, you know, everybody knows guys are kind of dumb. But we need to give them a day, too, because the women get a day, so we'll just give them a Father's Day thing, and then we'll move along with our lives. And it's just strange to me, because I just feel like the attitude towards men in our culture has become infected. I mean, if you follow news or social media, you see these messages all the time. Down with the patriarchy. We need to eliminate testosterone from human genetics. Because it's terrible. Men are the problem. If we could just eliminate men, the world would function much better. I'm glad I didn't hear any amens right there. I, didn't, I was waiting for a couple of women to be like, mm, that kind of makes a point. Now, with the whole cancel culture thing, I would have been much more nervous to say things like this, but I just don't care anymore, so just cancel me. Um, I, I don't care. I don't care. I'm exhausted by it. 
I'm sick of the pandering. I'm tired of these ridiculous messages that are terrible for humanity because this is the truth. Our world desperately needs good men. It does. We are desperate for this. And even on top of that, our world desperately needs good, godly fathers. This is what our world needs. And so you put Jokic on a basketball court, you win championships. You put a godly man in the life of another person, you start winning so many of the games that our culture is losing right now. So they've done so many different studies on this. It's almost mind-blowing when you think about it. They've done studies on the impact of the presence of just a father in a kid's life. That's it. No other metric. What is the correlation between putting a good man into a kid's life and what it can do for that child? Just listen to some of these stats. If a child just has a decent man in their life, they are two times as likely to go to college. They have a 43% higher academic achievement, and they even have a higher average intelligence. Their IQ goes up. Seven times less likely to end up as a teenage parent, two times as likely to be physically fit, four times lower risk of depression and anxiety, greater financial success and security over the course of their lives, 80% less likely to commit a crime or end up in prison, 33% lower risk of behavioral problems. They have higher social skills, confidence, self-control, and emotional resilience. All from the presence of a single man. That's all it takes. And this reality is why I think Frederick Douglass, many years ago, he didn't have the stats, but he just knew this to be true. He said this, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. So we're going to take a little pause in the Ruth series we've been in, if you've been joining us the last couple weeks. And I just want to take just a single Sunday day to talk about the power of a good father. I want to talk about that today and just take a moment. Now, we're really just going to be asking, what can we do to give every child, even every person, the opportunity to have a good, godly man in their life? And what kind of impact can that really have? And so this is going to be a little bit more topical. We'll be jumping around the Bible, but I'm hoping that all of us can leave here just feeling inspired and challenged in how we can help encourage and cultivate this in our own culture. So this isn't even just for the dads or the men. There's some great principles here for everybody, and you'll see as we get going. So let's just dig into it and see what we can find. So the first thing I think we see that is so critical to living this out is invest the time. Invest the time. Ephesians 5.16, this is written by a guy named Paul. He said this, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, Paul is just getting very practical here. He's saying, you got to be wise about how you're using your time, how you're living your life, because he says the days are evil. He's basically saying, most people are not doing this. They are wasting their time. They're wasting their lives. They're doing dumb things, just living in sin. And he's like, do not be one of those people. Do not squander your life. Use the time well. And this idea of investing never ceases to amaze me. To me, it's like magic. If you invest an amount of money, if you do it wisely, you can actually create more value by using a set amount. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. You can create more just by a good investment. Now, most people only think of investing in financial terms. What we don't realize, though, is you can invest time, too. You can actually use a certain amount of time and create greater value in your life based on how you use it. And this is particularly true with how you invest in other people. Now, one thing that people do not appreciate enough is that the time in your life is not equally distributed. It feels like it is, but it's actually not. Let let me explain this. This is a chart right here of the amount of time you'll spend with kids throughout your life. Do you notice that that is not a very even line right there? Okay? There's a very specific window, this is particularly true for parents, of course, where your time investment has a much greater return. 
So this is what the studies have found. If you do have a child, by the time that child is 12 years old, you will have already spent 75% of the total time you will ever spend with that kid by the time they're 12. By the time your child reaches 18, you will have spent as much as 95% of the total time you will ever spend with that child in your life. So it's pretty much over by the time they're a legal adult. So you need to take that massive investment window you have and use it to its best potential. And so here's how this works. I have so many people who talk to me who are way further in the parenting journey, by the way, and they have adult kids. And they just love the relationship they have with their kids. They're like their friend now. They just get to hang out with them. They love to have them over. It's like a beautiful thing. That did not happen overnight. That was years and years of painful toil. <laughs> but now they are experiencing the benefits of a very, very good investment. I saw this post on social media recently, and I just had to save it. And I've been looking back at it often. This is what the person said. 20 years from now, the only people who remember you worked late are your kids. That one caught me. Because I know there's a lot of things that compete for our time. I get that. But I think particularly with fathers especially, work sometimes can be the greatest competitor when it comes to us being able to make strategic investments in the next generation. And I know everybody has a different situation and season, but I've noticed more and more today that a lot of people's jobs are not really protected just by time or even place. Your work follows you home, it's on your phone, your email's constantly going off. I mean, I'll get messages from our staff at 10 p.m. sometimes. I always ignore them, but they sometimes message me very late. And so there's just always work. And again, you have to adjust this for your season. I'm in little kid phase right now, so I'm just speaking from my experience. So you, you think about this, but one thing that I have learned as I've done the math is just how small my opportunities really are. So for me, in a typical day during the week, I'll have maybe about an hour with the kids before they go to school or childcare. And then if I get to work at a somewhat normal time, maybe another hour, hour and a half after. So maybe in a typical day, I'll two, two and a half hours of real physical present time with my kids. That's actually not a whole lot of time when you really think about it. And I will tell you this right now, I fail at this often. I am preaching this way better than I'm practicing it right now, okay? And Nicole's right there for accountability. You can ask her. But I am constantly trying to remind myself, I have to maximize that investment opportunity right there. Because once you lose it, it's gone. And so for me, I do have one of those jobs that just can fill your whole life like it never actually stops ever. So I've actually learned just this amazing secret, if it helps any of you, you know, food for thought. I call it just kind of staggering my schedule or doing split shifts. So I try to plan my day around those windows with the kids as much as I possibly can because they're so small. And so sometimes it means I got to get up stupid early to get some stuff done before they wake up. And then when you get home, you try to really put the computer away. You try to put the phone away. Again, preaching better than I'm practicing. But once they're in bed, then you got a couple more hours where you got to knock some things out too. Now, I'll tell you this right now. This is an exhausting way to live my life. I'm very tired right now. I'm actually napping right now. You don't know it. I'm sleeping. But it's tiring. But I've learned I want my kids to get the best investment possible. And I'm constantly striving for it and falling short. But for you, you have to realize, these are small windows of time. They don't last forever. And so I don't want my kids only having memories of me staring at a phone and a computer. And so I don't know what your season of life is, but how can you maximize the investment opportunity you have with the people that you're influencing, especially when it comes to the next generation? It will strengthen your relationship with them, it will cultivate them into a better person, but then you will eventually get to tap into those investments and you'll live a much richer life too. You gotta invest the time. It doesn't come back. There's another layer to this too. This is particularly for the dads, but this applies to everything. Raise them up spiritually. So we're still in the same letter Paul wrote in Ephesians. He says this a chapter later, chapter six, fathers, do not exasperate your children. 
Yeah, you could laugh there. Um, instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, that whole don't exasperate your kids, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. I'm going to save that for another day, okay? Maybe that'll be next year's Father's Day. But I want to focus on the second half. Bring them up in the training instruction of the Lord. Now, this is what's interesting to me about this verse. Paul does not say, hey, moms and dads. He doesn't say that. He specifically addresses the fathers, the men. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this. Maybe Paul was thinking of the fact that he was aware that men just seemed to struggle with this a little bit more. It didn't come as natural. Maybe he was speaking to a specific moment in time. But we cannot deny the fact here that Paul is charging fathers to carry the responsibility of their children's spiritual development. The dads are called to carry this weight. Now, research has found something very interesting about this idea. What it's found is that men do seem to have a disproportionate impact on the spiritual lives of their kids. Now, I want to be careful saying that because, ladies, we all know, you play an essential role. Amen, everybody? Like, we are not denying the ladies at all here. You, you ladies are so critical. We love you. But it is Father's Day. So, this is what the research has found. If you have, like, maybe a family that has a mother or father in place, if the mother is the only one who attends church in that family and the father doesn't, the kids will only have a 2% chance of making church a part of their life when they grow up as adults. 2%. Now, this is what is astounding. If the father is the only one who attends church and the mother doesn't, those kids, by the time they're adults, will have as much as a 75% chance of continuing in that spiritual journey that the father has set. So whatever you want to say about this, guys, we have to just own this. Your role in the spiritual life of your kids matters massively. And Paul says you have to bring them up in training. Now, anyone who's ever played a sport in here, or maybe you work out, you know training is not a one-and-done thing. <laughs> you don't go to the gym once. It is a daily grind. It's exhausting. It's a discipline. It's not always fun. And Paul uses that word carefully. This is training, guys. But he also says it's instruction. Now, I know some men who are really good at helping a kid learn how to throw a ball or swing a bat or drive stick shift. Like some of the guys, you know, you, you are like in your zone if you just have something to help a kid learn. But again, Paul doesn't say, hey, just give them instruction. He says instruction in the Lord. And so this is not just about helping your kids learn sports, guys. Paul is adamant. You have a responsibility to help develop and cultivate a genuine faith in your kids' lives, to help them know God, to walk closely with them and grow in their own personal relationship with Jesus. So I want to ask the dads here in particular, what are you doing to raise your kids up in the ways of Jesus? What are you doing? My general experience, especially being a pastor, I get more exposure to this, is many times the women are way better at this. They take it a lot more seriously. They're a lot more passionate about it. And, and the men sometimes take a back seat. And guys, I know it can be intimidating. And if you are married, your wife may far outpace you in this. But you just need to know you have a responsibility. And so this does not have to be complicated, actually. This can be something that's very easy. The first thing I would challenge some of the guys with is, are you modeling this yourself? Your kids cannot replicate what they don't see. Do they see a man who is passionately walking with Jesus himself? Do your kids see you praying? Do they see you on your knees seeking Jesus? Do they see you cracking open a Bible and really digging into God's word? Do they see you making church a priority and actually serving his people? Do they see it in your life? Why would you expect it from them if you're not living it yourself? But even outside of that, it really, again, it's not rocket science, guys. You can just take a few small steps. 
Maybe every day you just build in a routine. Maybe at bedtime, you pray together real quick before bed. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. Maybe it's before they go to school and you just have that kind of built into the routine. Maybe at the dinner table, you read like a little devotional or something together. If you've got little kids, there's so many great little kids' Bibles out there. Just make it the before bed practice. You know, we're going to get into God's word together. Some of you guys have some older kids in here. Something really cool to do would be get your kid like their own real Bible, like a nice one, and write like a letter in it and inspire them and challenge them in it. Maybe you can go see some movie or watch a show that'll elicit some spiritual conversations. You can kind of be creative with this and have some fun with it. It doesn't have to be crazy, but I just want to challenge the guys in here. This is training. You got to be intentional with this thing. You are called to raise the next generation up spiritually and help them establish their own relationship with God. There's just one other thing, though, I want to put on this conversation. This one might make you laugh a little bit. I want you to see where I kind of pulled this from. This might seem a little random. I want to challenge the men in here to be the fun dad. (laughs) Now, let me explain where I'm going with this. There's a moment in Jesus' ministry when all these kids start crowding around him. And it's just getting kind of crazy, okay? It's like Chuck E. Cheese's or something is happening right around Jesus. And his disciples get a little cranky about this. They're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, he's too important. He ain't got time for all these little kids. So they're trying to shoo them away so he can do the more important matters of ministering to adults. And then look what happens in Luke 18. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, I do not want to read too much into this text. I don't want to stretch it too hard. But there is one thing I know about kids. They don't like hanging out with Scrooges. I haven't seen many four-year-olds just running to go hang out with a curmudgeon. They know how to discover who the fun people are. And at least we can pull from this text, kids liked Jesus. And on some level, the kids like you, you have to have some element of fun and attractiveness to your personality. You just have to. And so, I rag on my kids all the time. I do. You guys are my counseling, okay? You're cheaper than a professional. So I talk about how exhausting they are and how much work they are, and they're all of those things. They are. But I probably don't say this enough, you know, from the pulpit. I love being a dad. It is an absolute blast. Like, I just love my kids. And I think for a lot of parents, maybe even dads in particular, our kids can often feel like a second job. Anybody ever feel like that? And not only are they a second job, it's a job that doesn't pay, and it's actually an expensive job. You pay to work that job. You know, it's kind of a strange thing. And so you kind of start to fantasize about, one day, I'm going to sleep through the night. Nobody's going to be screaming or crying. One day, I'm actually going to be able to do what. I want to do. I'm only going to have to wipe my own butt, and nobody else's butt is going to have to be wiped by me. And you're just dreaming of this. You know, some of the fondest memories I have with my own dad uh, is the fun. My dad was the fun dad. So we would have all this stuff going on when I was a kid, back when kids played outside and just ran around the neighborhood, you know. Anytime the action was going on with the kids, my dad got right in the middle of it. All the other dads would be inside watching the football game or sitting on the porch, and my dad would be like, okay, pond hockey, I'm getting some skates. Flashlight tag, I'm going to be running around with the kids at night. We're going to get involved with this thing. Video games, my dad was gaming with kids even at one point in time. That got a little excessive, dad, but um, he, he was in the mix. And so much of the fun that I have with my dad, I just cherish to this day. And there's just something so powerful about having these fun experiences with kids. It actually helps strengthen and solidify relationships. Like, it's actually a really critical thing. Last week, Nicole and I actually took our kids to their first ever movie at a theater. Okay, this was the, the, the first one they had ever been to. Now, any of you who know Nicole's and I's parenting style, you know this is a massive step for Nicole and I, because our kids basically get about this much screen time. We're very low, no screen time. So to go to a whole movie theater was a big deal. But when Nicole and I talked about it, we're like, let's make this fun. Let's not just make this a check the box. Let's make this like a moment for them. So we did it right. We took them to Dollar Tree and taught them how to sneak candy into the movie theater. (laughs) To the glory of God. 
showed them exactly how to do it. We were like, don't say anything to any of the workers. Write in mom's purse. It'll be good. They did great. I was a proud dad at that moment. They did perfect. I even, and again, you know how cheap I am, I even paid $10 for the popcorn. I mean, that was a splurge, but I'm like, my kids are getting movie theater popcorn, okay? We just made it a whole experience, but it was just this fun moment with our kids, and it was just this special experience we got to share with them. Now, again, this changes with age and stage and season of life, so you can think about it for yourself, but maybe you've got little kids right now. You know, there's just something so special about dad getting on the floor and just wrestling with his kids. You know, there's actually research that shows that is actually critical for a young child to be able to wrestle around with, with their dad. Maybe your kids are a little bit older. You should be the first man that your daughter ever dates, guys. Take your daughter on a date. Get all dressed up. Make it a thing. Let her have those special moments with dad where you can just set the tone for how, what she expects for a man to treat her. Again, for some of you guys, older kids, you can take them on some overnight trips. You can create some special memories. You can, you can really have some fun with this thing. And so this doesn't have to feel like work, everybody. This can be an amazing thing in your own life. And what I want to just challenge the men to aspire to is to be the kinds of men that just live out the love and fun of Jesus in the kids that are in your own life. When I don't preach sometimes, I'll sneak out of the service and I'll walk the church a little bit. And I do that just so I can get a chance to check out kids ministry and students and see the volunteers, thank some people. So I'll do that every now and then. And last week, I actually took that opportunity. So I'm floating around the church while Brandon Freda was preaching. And first I gotta say, I am just so grateful for so many of the people who faithfully serve this church week in, week out, especially the ladies. There are so many women. You ladies literally are doing so much of the heavy lifting in this church. I'm so grateful for so many of you. It's amazing. But one thing that just made me so happy to see last week is the amount of men we had serving the kids and students in our church. You know, there are just so many good men who are just investing into kids that are not even their own. There was even one point in time I looked in a kid's room and there were just a group of kids chasing a man around with fun noodles, just trying to whack him. And, and he's just running around having fun with it. They're having a blast. I was just like, that is awesome that that's happening in church right now. I chopped in the student ministry and there are grown men sitting next to students in that room, in circles with them, pouring into them, sacrificing their own precious time for the sake of these kids. And so I just want to thank the men in our church. Thank you so much to you guys who are faithfully loving and serving these kids. We have men every single week who are walking the halls to keep this place safe, keeping their eyes on every single corner so every kid stays safe. That is happening every single moment you're inside this building. And yeah, can we just honor all those guys? Thank you guys. What's so powerful about this, though, is you do not need to be a biological father to have that impact. You know all those stats I read at the top of the message, the impact in kids' life? What they found is that as long as there is some type of president, present male role model in kids' life, they can also move all those numbers for that kid. You just have to be present and make the investment and God can transform the lives of people around you. And I just want to keep encouraging this in our church. Let's be that kind of church that gives every single student and child an opportunity to have a good, godly man in their life. Let's be that kind of church. Now, at this moment in this message, there's a good handful of you right now that are saying, dads are cool. I like my dad. He's kind of a dork. And has lame dad jokes, but I love my dad. And, and, and you, had a, you had a good dad. Maybe you're going to see him today. You're going to love on him. Like, you're grateful. You've had a great experience. I also know, though, that that has not been every single, every single person's experience when it comes to this topic. There are dads who squander their role. And they do not live up to the high calling a fatherhood. Everybody has a different experience, 
But I know for some of us in this room, you had an absent father. Wasn't emotionally present, wasn't physically around much. You may not even know who he is. Some of us in here, you had the abusive father. Maybe there was even serious neglect. Some people have an oppressive or domineering father who just had a heavy hand in the way they parented. I know there's many people who've had the father who was abusing substances and was fighting addiction. I preached a sermon a couple weeks ago, and maybe one thing you guys should know is I actually do not write my sermons out word for word. I've got some like headers and notes and scriptures and all that stuff, but for me, I, I kind of am talking on the fly. I promise I prepare very hard, but I like to be in the moment. And so sometimes I'll say stuff I did not plan on saying at all. And you guys know when those moments happen, when I shove my foot in my mouth, I say a lot of dumb things, okay? So for better or for worse, that's how I do the preaching thing. And a couple weeks ago, I was just doing a little throwaway joke about even my parenting experience. So I said how, I was talking to my son, and I said, son, I brought you into this world, and you guys know the rest of it, and I can take you out of it, right? So again, not in my notes, I'm just saying it as I'm going. I get a call from a man in our church a couple days after that. And he says, Brian, I know you did not mean anything by that. You know, that's just a common line people use. But he said, that is the exact thing my dad would say to me before he abused me as a kid. This was a grown man, far along in his years. And one just throwaway line in my mind brought him right back to his childhood and everything he experienced with his own father. I have learned now in my years of ministry that it is very common for people to carry around father wounds their entire life. I had a conversation with a man in our church. We had dinner a little while back. We were actually talking about this topic. And he said, you know, Brian, the whole father wound thing, he's like, it's not really like a scar. Because scars, you don't really feel them after a while. You just kind of see them. He said, a father wound is more like that pain you get in your knee as you age. It never quite goes away. Sometimes it tweaks up a little bit. And sometimes it's just that little present throbbing. It's like, that's what a father wound feels like. It's just kind of this twinge in your soul that you feel from time to time. And so I just want to take a couple minutes to talk to some of the people in our church who maybe did not have the ideal father experience. And for some of us, all these principles would apply for any real relationship you've had in your life. And so you can even apply it in that way. But I just want to say, what are some steps you could possibly take? I know there might be a lot more things you could do and need to do, but I at least want to help encourage getting people on that journey. So what is at least the first thing maybe you can think about doing? I would encourage you to pray for him. Jesus, in Luke 6, says this, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, these are one of those lines from Jesus that we're totally desensitized to. Because we've read enough of Jesus' words to be like, oh yeah, Jesus says a lot of hippie stuff that sounds really good that we don't apply at all. You know, we're just kind of used to it. Jesus like nice-sounding phrases. We have to understand, though, how incredible it was for Jesus to say something like this. Up to this point in time before Jesus came, there was no teaching like this. There was no even concept of grace for your enemies or forgiveness or even praying for somebody who mistreated you. If you said anything like this, it would sound insane. They'd be like, pray for them. Oh, I'll pray for them to experience a painful, miserable death. Like that would be the attitude. And so Jesus' teachings flew in the face of the culture. And any general understanding you have about this idea, you can give Jesus credit for. Sometimes I'll have conversations with people and they'll be complaining about a person big time. Usually it's about a politician. You know, they'll have a lot of thoughts. And I'll listen to them for a while, and then when they stop to catch a breath, I'll say, hey, I'm just curious. How often do you pray for that person? And I just see, like, the look in their eyes, like, oh, boy. <laughs> and they're like, uh, never. I'm like, I can tell. I can tell you're not praying for that person. Because 
why would Jesus be so adamant about praying for people that mistreat us? Why is this so important to him? Well, Jesus knows something. You can't pray for anybody in any consistent, genuine, heartfelt way and remain embittered or resentful towards them. Jesus knows if you are really praying for somebody else, it is a healing balm to your own soul. And so you just can't keep those feelings in your heart towards them if you're really praying to God on their behalf. Some of us in here, you were mistreated by your father or somebody else in your life. And Jesus would say, you need to pray for them. Because not only will it start to open the door for God to work in their life, it'll start to do a transformational work in your own heart. Pray for him. There's another piece to this, because I understand some of us, our fathers are not still with us. There's other dynamics, but this next step is definitely critical too. You need to forgive him. Jesus, another point he's teaching in Mark 11, said this, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Anything, anyone. Jesus places no conditions when it comes to forgiving. None. Now, I do feel like forgiveness has become sort of a cliche in our culture. I don't think we actually understand it. We know it's a good idea, but we don't understand it. Because some people, they think, oh, when I forgive somebody, this is what this means. It means I'm minimizing what they've done to me. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying. Some people think, oh, when I forgive, that means we've reconciled. And that's not it at all. When you forgive, it doesn't mean there's trust in the relationship. It doesn't even mean the relationship has been restored necessarily. Some people are like, well, am I letting him off the hook if I forgive her? I don't feel any type of forgiveness in my heart. And so we totally misunderstand this concept completely. Paul, in another letter, helps unpack what this concept really is. In Colossians 2, he talks about what God has done for us. He said, he forgave us all our sins. He canceled the debt which stood against us and condemned us. He's taking it away, nailing it to the cross. At this very moment in time, our current national debt is $31 trillion. Now, the estimates are that it will be over $50 trillion by the end of this decade. That's a lot of money. If you do the math, that means every taxpaying household in America would have to pay $250,000 to help get us back to break even. If you factor in all the unfunded Medicare and Social Security that we're accountable for, too, every individual taxpayer in America would have to pay $933,000 to help cover all of our debt. Now, how many people here, if the IRS came and knocked on your door today and said, we need a million dollar check right now, how many people in here would be in trouble? <laughs> that'd, probably, that'd probably affect the bank account just a little bit. Now we have massive financial debt in our country, but there's actually and even more critical debt going on. And this is the truth about every single person's situation. Every single one of us has a ridiculous spiritual debt worth way more than trillions and trillions of dollars. It's actually unpayable. You could never accumulate the spiritual resources to pay off the debt you owe God. And some people don't understand that. The reason is, God is perfect. He is infinite. You sin against him, and you have already racked up an impossible debt. Even the smallest thing is the most heinous crime in the face of a perfect God. We cannot pay it. But did you see what Paul said? He said, God forgave all our sin. He canceled the debt. Jesus paid the debt. He said it was nailed to the cross. This was not free. It's not like God just wrote off the check. No, he paid it. 
And the reason he was able to is because Jesus was God. He had the spiritual resources to cover the payment. He was the only one who could. Jesus paid it all. Some of you in here, the reason why you do feel so heavy all the time, the reason why you don't feel a sense of levity and life, is because you're still carrying your debt. You're still trying to pay it in some way. You think you can earn it or achieve it or cultivate some sort of life that's going to fulfill you in every way. And you need to know you're not going to be able to do it. And today would be a really good day to have your debt canceled. Have you ever handed God your debt? Have you ever allowed him to cancel it in your life? That is the best thing you could possibly do today before you leave and say, God, I'm giving you my debt. Because when you do that, he will take that weight off of your back and you won't have to carry it. So if you are a genuine Christian here, you know that experience. Jesus setting you free. It's a great thing. It's a beautiful part of the Christian faith. But there's another expectation here. Look what Paul says in Colossians 3. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. God's forgiveness is our standard. He says, you need to forgive in the same way that God has forgiven you. Anything and anyone. No conditions. If that is a hard concept for you to wrestle with, let me just encourage you with two little steps you can take to get moving in this direction. The first thing I would encourage you with, if there's somebody you do need to forgive in your life, you should, number one, start with God. You need to take some time to really understand and appreciate the forgiveness of God in your life. You have to like, truly soak that in and appreciate it. It is a powerful reality. But there's another piece to this. You need to, at some point in your life, cancel the debt. There is a moment in your life when you have to decide that person does not owe me anymore. I am not keeping them on the hook for what they have done. And this is a powerful moment because you are actually absorbing the loss. This is very expensive for you to forgive somebody because there's no way they could really repay. So many of us, you can't go back in time. They can't undo what they did or said. So you're absorbing that loss. But here's why you can do it. You will never have to cancel a debt larger than the one God canceled for you. You will never have to forgive somebody more than God has forgiven you. And so you actually have the spiritual resources to forgive in a profound way, in a life-changing way. And so if this is something you need to do, maybe with a father, maybe with somebody else in your life. I've heard many people take steps in this direction when they cancel a debt. Some people, they have the personal conversation. They say, hey, I just want you to let you know. I love you, I appreciate you, and I forgive you. Some people, it's just a quick phone call. I've heard other people where they feel like they can't have that engagement, they'll actually write a letter out and just honor that person, thank them for the good things they did, and say, just so you know, I do forgive you. I don't hold any of that stuff against you. And what you find is, when you cancel the debt, you don't have to carry it anymore. God takes that weight off your life and starts to heal even some of the wounds and damage in your life. Now, before we close, I want to do one more thing. If you guys will track with me, I want to hit one more thing here. For some of us in here, God is going to ask you to choose to be a pivot generation. Now, track with me here. This idea pivot, this is technical definition. It means to completely change the way in which something is done. So we use this terminology in businesses. Business will pivot a product or service to try to save a company sometimes. In sports, you'll pivot to try to get around your opponent. Families, many times, will get stuck in a cycle of dysfunction. And sometimes they'll even get passed on for generations. But there has to be one person who chooses to pivot, who chooses to change the trajectory of that family. There's a man in the Bible named Hezekiah. He was a king. His dad's name was Ahaz. Ahaz was a terrible man. He was actually evil. He was so bad that he even sacrificed some of his kids to other gods. Now, I know your family is not perfect, but when your dad is sacrificing some of your brothers and sisters, other guys, you got some messed up family dynamics, okay? Talk about daddy issues. That's daddy issues right there. But look what it says about Hezekiah as he started to grow up. 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. Hezekiah had every single opportunity to repeat all of the mistakes 
of the guys who came before him. He could have continued right down that path, but he made a decision. He said, I am going to pivot. I'm going to be the pivot person in my generational line. And he completely changed the trajectory of a nation and his own family line because he made that decision. Now, this is something that I do not broadcast often. I do not like talking about this. It's something I even hesitated to share in a message because I feel like this often gets misunderstood. And that thing is that I actually do not drink alcohol. Now, it's not like I only drink on the weekends or special occasions. I don't drink any alcohol. Now, the reason I don't like sharing that is because I know what 90% of the people in the room just started thinking. Oh, there's goody two-shoes little Pastor Brian. Doesn't drink alcohol better than all of us. Just skipping down the street drinking Sprite with Jesus. Like, that's who Brian is. Okay, Brian, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, I get it. I totally get that. I want you guys to know this, though. I have no moral problems with drinking. I don't. Nicole and I will often stock our fridge for friends when they come over so they have some different options. Nicole will enjoy a glass of wine with dinner if we go out. Jesus drank wine, everybody. My goodness, okay? So we're good. I don't drink because I think there's some sort of moral issue with it. I don't drink because I'm pivoting. You see, as far as I know, my family line has really struggled with alcohol addiction as far back as I can measure. And it was a huge impact on my family as a child. I, I saw massive damage that alcohol and other substance abuse can do. And I remember in my early 20s, I went out with another pastor one time after a late night service, and he ordered a drink. And so I didn't want him to feel weird, and I was like, okay, fine, I'll order a drink too. But I remember when that bottle got put on the table, I had this moment where I just sensed God speaking to me, and he said, Brian, that's not for you. With your family history and the dynamics you've seen and experienced and even some of the genetic risks that can come with this, that's not something for you. And I just really had to take that impression seriously because I know for so many other people, it's perfectly fine. For so many of you in this room, you can have a drink. It's not an issue and more power to you, seriously. I've got no problems with it at all. But God is asking me to make a sacrifice for the sake of the generations coming after me. And some of you in here are called to be a pivot generation in your family line. God is asking you to make some massive changes so you can transform the trajectory of where your family's been going. And it may come at a massive cost. You may have to make sacrifices that many people don't have to, but it's going to be worth it. Many people have to pivot. You actually have to absorb a lot of the issues that came before you so your kids don't have to take them. It's painful. For some of you guys, you're going to have to find a way to give your kids what you were not given. It's a really hard thing to do. But if you can pivot properly, you can plant seeds that will one day become trees that future generations can eat from. You, you can be that person in your family line. I, thank you. I love being a pastor. Like I'm living my dream right now, guys. I love this church. I could not ask for more. I've got career goals. I've got dreams. I've got a bucket list of things I would love to see God do in my life. You know what I want more than anything else in my life? For Easton and Bryn to get to their adult years and say, we had a really good dad. I want that more than anything else. I'll make any sacrifice for that. And for any of you who God may be asking to make sacrifices for that as well, trust me, it'll be worth every single sacrifice. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. We're actually going to sing a song we just thought would fit so well with just talking about Father's Day. It's called, Yes, I Will.
It is a declaration of God, I want to step into your call for my life, your purposes. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to live a life that brings you praise and glory. And it's such a perfect opportunity for the men in the room to say, that's the kind of life I want to live. One that so many men are passing on. And so I want to challenge everybody to like sing this out. Like, God, I want to live these things. I want to make my life count. I want to use the time you've given me, not just wisely, but for maximum impact. And before the worship team sings this, though, I have to speak to one group of people in here very briefly. I know for a lot of us in this room, you hear this sermon, and it's hopefully a little inspiring, helpful, challenging, you're encouraged. I also know, though, that there are some men who are hearing this sermon right now, and you're actually feeling a little discouraged because you feel like the dad who messed up. You're like, Brian, I I was the dad who, who squandered some things. And maybe at this point in your life, your relationship with your kids is not what you wish it could have been. Maybe the marriage didn't work out the way you're hoping it would have worked out. Maybe there's just pieces in your life that you're even still picking up because of this. I know every single situation is different. I know it can be very complicated, but you need to hear me today. Jesus canceled your debt. He canceled your debt. We sang it at the top of the service. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness does not change for you either. And God today can set you free of any of the guilt and regret and past that may still be dragging you down. And for some of the men in this room, you know what your story can be? He finished really well. He finished really well. And I'm telling you, men, that is a great testimony. And it brings glory to God. So some of the men in here, you can just make this decision today, given whatever circumstances you're in, you say, God, I'm going to be the best possible dad I can be with where I am right now. Whatever that means, I'm going to do my best with the life I have left. I'm going to trust you to make it a wonderful story of finishing well. So I'm going to invite us all to stand. And I want us to sing this song out and declare to God, yes, I will. Everything you're calling me to do. In Jesus' name, let's sing it out. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.